All right. <clears throat> All right. I just want to reintroduce myself. It's been a bit uh, since I preached, uh, and so we have new people here. Uh, if this is your first time here, just so you know, don't worry. I'm not the main pastor, so <laughs> as you're making your evaluation on whether this is the place to go, don't base it on me. Uh, Dwayne is our main pastor. They bring me out of the closet every now and then to perform, and, uh, uh, and today they're letting me do that. Uh, my name is Chris Green. I work for the U.S. Mission of the Navigators. It's an international mission, and I run their first responder ministry for the U.S., and uh, if you don't know, East Ridge is a place that really loves cops and firefighters. We have a lot of them here. And uh, so, yeah. So, the other thing I realize is today is Super Bowl Sunday. And um, since there's no team that matters in the Super Bowl, uh, no, just, I'm just kidding, uh, but there really isn't. Okay, but um, so I didn't do this first service, but second service, I'm a little more awake. So, any San Francisco fans in here? Yeah, okay, we'll be praying for you guys. Yeah, yeah praying for your salvation. And Kansas City fans. Any Kansas City fans? Right here. I'm going to root for Kansas City today. So there you go. Oh, man, you're like right there in front row. That's sad. We'll be praying for you for sure because I know you. Okay. So um, my message today, I hope what it will do is to, today when you get to the Super Bowl and all that excitement's there, I hope to put a real damper on your Super Bowl party. That's my goal. I hope that you will go, you know what, Lord, this is just meaningless compared to you. But I do want you to have fun. I think the Lord's rooting for someone too. Um, and it's probably a rugby team. Okay, anyway. So today we're going to do a passage, and it's an interesting passage. I want to read the passage and when I first got the passage from Dwayne, so Dwayne's going through the series of Mark, and he says, hey, Chris, uh, if you're in town, can you do this message? And when I saw, I, I said yes, and I didn't look at the passage, mistake. I looked at the passage about two weeks ago, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is not cool that he gave me this passage. And you're, but then when I started studying it, I started getting into it, I got, and, and Jordan emailed me yesterday, uh, last night, he goes, how's it going? And I go, I'm excited about this. And I hope I can in some way convey that excitement. It's a passage where when you look at it, we're going to read it here in a second. It's not an Arab that's exciting in that sense, uh, as in joyous or anything. It's actually a really somber uh, incident where John the Baptist gets beheaded, okay? That doesn't conjure up excitement. But when I started studying it and I began uh, looking at the passage in depth, and then I began to see commentary after commentary after commentary after commentary confirm the main message here. I got excited because I realized what Mark was doing. And so today, I hope to bring this home to you a little bit today on Super Bowl Sunday. I hope that I'll give you something to think about as you watch uh, uh, the Super Bowl today or host a party. Or if you're going to be like me, I'm actually going to be swimming. I don't, it's a long story, but um, I'm going to, I signed up for something not realizing that today was Super Bowl Sunday. But anyway, so I want to just unpack this passage. What we're going to do is we're going to read it. I want to look at the characters. I want to look at some really interesting touch points, go back to some things Ben said last week and then others have said, and then we're going to get into, I want to just give you some principles uh, to just, just to think about. And that's what we're going to do today. Bear with me a little bit as we go through it. Open up your Bibles if you have them. If not, it'll be on the screen to Mark chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to read through 29. So I'm going to take, Ben did uh, last week, I'm just going to jump right into a piece that Ben did just to tie it to our passage. You'll see why in a minute, and then we'll keep going. 
All right, and it starts out this way. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. At this point, John the Baptist is dead, and now the rumor is is that John the Baptist is raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like the ones of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Notice he just focuses on that. He's a little nervous. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he said, uh, and had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias. Herodias is his wife, and his, and, but in the Scripture it says, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, whom John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, his wife, nursed a grudge against John. I have never met a woman who's had a grudge before. I'm sorry. Don't laugh. Just saying. Okay. So Herodias nursed a grudge against, his, against John and wanted to kill him. Any husband that just laughed with their wife next to him, your Super Bowl party just went down. Okay. I just thought of that joke. Over, sorry. Okay. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod had a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's pretty big. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried to the end of the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an execution with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, brought it back, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took the body and laid it in the tomb. Now, you can imagine when I got this passage and I'm reading it, I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what I got to preach on? But as you will see, as we start to connect this passage, it's got a powerful message, and it's very intentional why Mark tells this story. But before we do this, let's look at some of the characters. Normally, I don't do a lot of character study. Um, that in, in, they teach you when you're learning, you know, when you go to Bible college and seminary, they teach you to really study character development and so forth. That's not usually my area. But on this occasion, I was curious because Herod is, the, is the, obviously one of the main characters here. And we were in Israel this year. I went with Dwayne and a group of us went to Israel. Uh, and I was blown away, as was a, a friend of mine who, who we do ministry together, Tom and I were there. I was blown away by the, the architecture and the building of Herod. Now, but then I started thinking in my mind, the dates don't line up because I know what Herod built this, what years he lived. And then I, so I was curious, like, are we talking about the same Herod, all that? And, you know, so I had to look it up. And I found this awesome chart that shows you kind of the family tree 
and it begins to put these characters in place. And so I just wanted to show this to you today. This is from the uh, Biblical Archaeology Society. You can find it online, but it's a great picture, and it shows you the intermingling of all the characters in the New Testament, all the lead characters, the leaders of the, uh, the Roman Empire that are over Jerusalem and, Ju- and the Jewish and Samaria territories. Um, and you can kind of get an idea, and it kind of ties a little bit of the New Testament together. So let's walk through this chart. Sorry I don't have a cool laser pointer. Dwayne normally does, but they don't trust me with one, so I'll just have to use colors here. All right, so you look at blue, and that's Herod the Great. Herod the Great kind of ran the whole area, all of probably Israel, uh, Samaria, that whole kind of area there. He was the king over that area, and he's the great architect. He actually helped uh, rebuild the, the uh, temple. Uh, he did the Temple Mount. Um, I believe, I can't remember, but I believe he was involved in helping build some roads in Petra. And if you look at it, when you go to Jordan, you can see these roads and they're just amazing. His architecture and his building was, uh, is amazing. Okay. Um, it, it rivals to today. In fact, one of the things that you look at, you see a stone and it's probably cubic. It's bigger than this like prop here cubic, and they, they cut this out in that big and moved it without cranes and stuff and built these. In t- the, if you go to Jerusalem and see how they built it, it's phenomenal. It will blow your mind. And that's Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, though, when he, uh, be, uh, when he dies in about 4 uh, BC, just as Christ was, uh, he was actually uh, in the womb of Mary at this point, uh, but just as Christ is coming on scene, Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill Jesus. If you remember, they were doing the, the thing, the Magi were coming through, and they go, uh, Herod the Great's like, who are you going to see? And he's like, <clears throat> we're going to go see the King of the Jews. He's here, the Messiah's here. We're going to give him a gift. And Herod the Great, it's Herod the Great that wants him dead. You, if you remember, they, they snuck out a different way. We won't get into that story too much, but just know that's Herod the Great. After Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom up into four, they call it, and, the, and each of the four rulers became tetriarchs, okay? Tetriarch is just a, a fancy word for four kind of rulers, four, uh, it means four, and uh, those are represented on the green line there, not the red, the red, but the green line, you see each of the tetriarchs, and they each get a piece of the kingdom. The Herod that we're looking at today is Herod Antipas. Uh, number six, it says six by second husband of Herodias on this chart. That's the Herod in this story, okay? All right, so that helps clarify a little bit, right? And you've got Herod uh, Archelaus, Herod Philip, and Philip of Tetrarch. That's not confusing at all, right? You see why you got to kind of map it out, all right? Now, Herodias is the purple line there. Herodias is the wife. Notice that she was originally married to Herod, Herod of Philip. She has a daughter, go to five down there, the light purple, it says Salome. That's the daughter that we believe danced. It's not in the scripture. We'll talk about why in just a second. She's not written about in the scripture, but most scholars, every, every scholar I looked at, that's who they think it was that was dancing. So Herodias has married a couple there, and John the Baptist is against that second marriage. He says, this isn't right. He's kind of doing it, and that's why the grudge builds up, right? Okay, so Salome goes in and dance for Herod Antipas, and, the, they, and, and he says, you can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist, so you can see that John the Baptist uh, is, uh, is execu- uh, executed because of the dancing and Herodias, okay? Now, just for sake, 
as you read the rest of the New Testament, it's kind of interesting to see that uh, King Agrippa is the one who imprisoned Peter and James, and that Felix is the one who didn't let Paul out of prison. So, this family has a dynamic impact of rulers. These are the rulers at the time that the New Testament was really coming about. And that's why I found this chart so fascinating. But so, as you look at these characters, you have Herod Antipas, so he's a tetrarch. Just a little side note, I won't get too far into it. He's not a king, although in the Scripture they identify that as a king. He identified himself as a king, but what's really interesting, the Scripture does that because he's really a false king. He's a patriarch, not a king. There's a whole thing about this, and so he's not even the real king. The real king is Jesus. It's, it's a fascinating thing. We don't have time to dig into that. Um, but if you look at that, it's a tetrarch because he divided the kingdom into four, and these are the four John the Baptist is going after, uh, or, or uh, John the Baptist is telling Herod uh, of Antipa uh, that he can't be with Herodias because it's, it's a second marriage to his brother, he, or to, uh, who she was originally married to the brother. All right, so there's Herod, Herod the Great, Herodias. Now, John the Baptist is interesting. John the Baptist is the other character here, and I want to look at him uh, in just a second, but I want you to, Ben said something last week in his sermon that this is, that is so important, and I want you to understand that Mark does this all the time. Mark will tell his narrative or say his story. He will tell the event of what happened in the gospel, and he does it in such a way to help you or remind you of something that happened in the Old Testament. So if you remember, Ben told you last week that uh, the sending two by two and that whole narrative is to remind you of the Exodus. Remember that? So it's the reminder of the Exodus. He doesn't stop there because in this story, the way he tells the story of, of the dancing daughter and uh, Herodias and Herod and all that, it's designed to remind you of... Jezebel and Ahab in the Old Testament. Okay? So in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33, this is what it says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Well, is he a good king or a bad king? Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, in fact, it says he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Way to go. That's what you want to be known for. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. All right, so just a quick, I mean, I'm not even asking you to be an Old Testament scholar. Do you think it's a good thing he married Jezebel? Um, anybody? No one has an opinion on this one? Oh, yeah, right. Not a good thing because of the context, right? Okay. So you find out that he built an altar to Baal. He even put up an Asherah pole. I mean, this guy's going the wrong direction all the way. Now, it was interesting. When I first saw this passage, I was thinking it through, and I thought, you know, I could do a whole thing on marriage on this one. All right? I could, but that's not the main point. So, let me just do a little side note here, okay? There's a great Greek philosopher. I love this Greek philosopher, female Greek philosopher, and she says this, the man may be the head of the household, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head whichever way she pleases. <laughs> uh, if you've not read any of Maria Porticolis' work, 
It's because she hasn't written anything. Um, you have to watch the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. All right, so the reason you're a San Francisco fan is probably because your wife, okay? <laughs> Just saying. You think you made that decision on your own, but the fact you're even allowed to wear it is probably because your wife. I do know you sit in that seat right there because your wife makes you. <laughs> Welcome to the king head of the house, right? Okay, I won't pick on you anymore. Well, at least for the next 10 minutes. Okay, you're wearing the shirt, dude. Welcome to the party. So, so here's the reality. I do believe in a biblical, a biblical look at how our family should be run is the man is the head of the household. But it is very clear from the scripture that the woman is the key influencer in how that works. So Maria Portocolos' quote here is absolutely true. And if you look at the Old Testament and you look at the characters in the, king, uh, the, the king's men and the book of Proverbs, by the way, and the book of Ruth, the importance of who you marry really determines a lot about the character and all that, the values you will have. In my own personal ministry, I work with firefighters and uh, cops, and you would think in your mind they should be somewhat healthy, kind of mentally and physically and all that. The reality is they're not. I work full-time and don't have enough staff because they're not. And so many times it's because they pick the wrong spouse. I could do a whole series on this, but that is not the point of this passage. But it is an important piece of this passage because just like Ahab marrying Jezebel helped him just accelerate down the wrong way, Herod marrying uh, Herodias also is the same thing. A little side note, let's keep going. But here's the interesting thing about John the Baptist, just like Ben pointed out the Exodus, you should be reminded by two by two, just like I'm showing you Ahab and Jezebel is, a, is the exact same story. Even John the Baptist and Mark is compared to Elijah multiple times, okay? Now, when the Oscars and all those fancy things happen, do you ever notice in the paper the next day they actually care about what people were wearing, okay? I think it's stupid. I mean, when I see that you know, I could care less that she wore a Chantilly dress or whatever it is. I don't know. Chantilly, I think that's a mushroom, so I guess it looks like a mushroom. I don't know. I just skip that. It, you know, it's like, I don't care, you know. But it's interesting when the Scripture gives a description of someone's what they wear, the Gospels, in fact, all Scripture, when they put something in there, there's, it's very intentional. They don't put stuff in there that just for filler. Everything's intentional in the Scripture. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Could you imagine him showing up to the Oscars? <laughs> I guarantee he'd be a headline. Like, dude, like this, like, caveman shows up. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say he was wearing pants, by the way. I'm just saying. Okay, anyway. Um, so, but you got, like, uh, you got, like, the Flintstones showing up. I mean, that's kind of what I picture is like the Flintstones, Bam Bam or something showing up with a leather belt. That's what you got. Why did Mark put that in the gospel? Well, because when you go to 2 Kings 1, 6 through 8, watch this. This is about Elijah. A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said, go back to the king who sent you and tell him this is what the Lord says. So he's a prophet. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub? the God of Ekron. Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. Not good news. That's how prophets work. All right? 
The king asked, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, this was Elijah the Tishbite. That's how Mark describes John the Baptist. It should at least, just like the Exodus that Ben talked about, just like the Son of Man that Dwayne's talked about, remember? Every time the Son of Man is mentioned, it's going back to Daniel 7 and 9, where the Messiah, you get to see the Messiah come to the heavenly throne room before God the Father, and he says, I'm going to give you all of the world as your kingdom. You're it. You're the Messiah. Everything in Mark is designed to lay out and throw you back to the Old Testament, even down to what they're wearing. And here you are, John the Baptist, multiple times, even in this passage, is told that he is Elijah. He's, he's like the one, he's like Elijah. It just keeps, they just keep this up. There's a whole prophecy about Elijah and stuff in the Old Testament. We won't get into that right now, but it's right here. Everything in the Scripture is designed to remind you, uh, in the book of Mark, is designed to remind you of a theme in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. But here's where it gets really exciting. One of the interesting things, so when I first got the passage, I read it, I'm like, oh, that's a bummer passage, Super Bowl Sunday, I'm going to be like, hey, let's talk about someone's head getting lost. And then all of a sudden, Dwayne actually sent me a couple commentaries, and then I have a bunch of commentaries myself. And in commentary after commentary after commentary after commentary, I think I looked at 12 of them, and they all said, this is the main idea. Now, those of you who've ever studied uh, the Bible and looked at commentaries, you realize sometimes they disagree with each other. But it was overwhelming, and here's what was overwhelming. And I heard just not too long ago, I didn't hear, but Christian even pointed this out. Mark would intentionally sandwich a narrative in between a whole section of Scripture to really drive home a point, to remind you of a major point. And here it is. Let's look at it. Last week, Ben talks about sending of the 12, okay? So they're going to go send. He does a great message on sending, remind you of the Exodus. Next week, you're going to hear that the 12 come back and they report to Jesus what they did. Okay? So you have this example. All right. Jesus is like, okay, you've just watched me do this. Go do it. They go away, they come back, and they tell him. So at the, right before the passage we just read on, the, on John losing his head, and right after, that's what happened. In the middle, he puts this weird story about John the Baptist losing his head. And we know that John the Baptist doesn't lose his head when he sends them. He lost it well before this time. If you look at Matthew and Luke, you can tell it happened before this moment where Jesus sends out his 12. So why is he bringing this up? Even in the past, he's like, hey, this reminds me of a story. Jesus sends a 12. This reminds me of a story. John lost his head. And then the disciples come back. If you look at it in context, what he does is he sacrifices. He, he sends a 12. There's a reminder of John the Baptist and then the reporting of the sending of the 12. And here's the overwhelming theme that you need to walk away from. This is the important part. This is why this story is right here, right after the passage of the sending and reporting. Right sandwiched in is a, the story of one of Jesus' guys dying. He's the one who called Jesus in. And that is to say this, the demand of, disciple, of the disciples, the follower of Christ, is our life. That's why this is in here, right where it is. Mark intentionally sets us up to remind the reader that discipleship isn't about sending and coming back and reporting all these awesome things, that some will die, some will give their life, that everyone has to give their whole life to the mission of discipleship. Have fun at your Super Bowl party. Do you get it? 
the demand of making disciples, the demand of being a disciple, a follower of Christ is our life. I want to just spend some time and I want to talk about what does it mean to be a disciple and what are some things that are happening in the church that are stopping discipleship? What is stopping the church from a full movement of disciple making around the U.S., around Happy Valley, around Clackamas, around Portland? What is it that's going on right now that is stopping this? I want to spend a little bit of time doing that. And in the first service, I, I had to kind of rush over them because I, it took too long to get through the Scripture, and I did too many rabbit trails. Right now, I'm right focused. It says I have 15 minutes. The Super Bowl doesn't start till 3 or something like that. So we have several hours to go over these points, okay, before I feel like anyone will leave. If anyone leaves while I'm speaking, I'm going to assume that you're walking out because you don't want to be a follower of Christ. So you got to go to the bathroom, hold it. Okay, just I'm making assumptions about you. That's what I do. All right. Number one, we have a lack of understanding of the role of the church and those in the church. And what I mean by that is so many of us will come to church, and this is our underlying assumption, especially men. My job is to sit here and laugh at the pastor's jokes, affirm him, and let him do the ministry. When in reality, actually, the primary mission of the church is for you to do the ministry and for the pastors and the preachers to encourage and strengthen you to go do the ministry. You are the primary agents that God wants to use to move the world. He has made that very clear. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, He wants to use us in such radical ways we get to see God the Father work in our own lives every day in amazing ways. If you talk to anybody who does that, they can tell you story after story where your jaw would hit the ground and go, oh my gosh, I want that life. That's what it is. In fact, this hit home years ago. I actually, uh, how I got into the ministry with law enforcement is I, uh, I was a college pastor at a very large church on the preaching team, and uh, I went and did a ride-along, and my life was fundamentally changed that night. And here, and what a ride-along is, you get in the car with a cop and you ride around. And I rode with a guy named Wayne back in the mid-90s, and it totally fundamentally changed my life. And here's what it did. I said, I will do more ministry as a cop than I will as a pastor any day. And that is true. I still believe it to this day. And so that day, I switched where I was going. I was going to become a career. So I started off, I was still the college pastor, so I became a reserve police officer, went to academy. And, um, and God did some radical stuff in my life at that point. Don't have time to get into it. But basically what happened is God called me into a ministry to reach first responders because they're hurting and broken. But if they can become ambassadors of Jesus, they would revolutionize the world because they meet more broken people on a daily basis than anybody else. So that's why I'm in this ministry. But here's what I had to do. Here's what I had to do. I had to understand my role. I remember another pastor, another preaching pastor at the same church. We had about 14 full-time pastors on staff. And I remember him coming to me, he goes, dude, you're making a mistake. Dude, you, you can't be a cop. You either got to be a cop or a pastor. I said, well, this day I choose to be a cop. I went to academy and, uh, and it, it's, it's long. Back in our day, it's eight weeks. Now it's 16. Some places it's six months. But you go to academy, I never even shot a gun. And you just get this overwhelming amount of information. You get law one, law two, defensive tactics, uh, how to drive a car you know, fast and do special thing called EVOC. Uh, uh, I, like I said, never shot a gun, so I'd learned how to shoot both a pistol and at that time a shotgun, all these little things. I mean, you just learn so much. 
And here's the interesting thing. When you get done with academy, there is no way, I've never met a person who gets done with academy and they could just go jump in a patrol car and be a cop. That's not how it works. It's overwhelming. In fact, I had the privilege for a while in my department, every single new recruit, I got to meet with them and talk to them for, you know, make sure they're okay and all that. And every one of them, I've never met one who says, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I felt like Academy, I got, it just hit me like a fire hose. And now I have no clue what I'm doing. Well, the good news is we don't go straight from Academy to a patrol car. Here's what we do. You get a guy or a gal assigned to you when you get out of Academy and they're called a field training officer or FTO. And an FTO, their job is so easy, but so important, most important part to becoming a cop. And that is, you're a brand new officer out of the academy, and on day one, you get into a patrol car, and the FTO gets in the driver's seat, and for a while, he's going to do all the work, and you're just going to watch him. That's it. You wear a uniform, you get to do that, but he's driving the car, controlling the computer, doing the lights and sirens, he's doing the calls, he's actually doing the paperwork at first, Eventually, you start doing it. But then something revolutionary happens. After a while, he says, okay, now it's your turn. And, and I remember that day, you get to drive the car. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, you feel like, I mean, the first time you turn lights on, you're just like, yeah. That wears off really quick because every time you do that, you know there's paperwork. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Anyway, <clears throat> so, but eventually you move to the driver's seat. And eventually, you start doing a lot more of the work on each call that you go to. And you start, you're like, okay, I got to do this and this. And he's helping you out and all this. But then there's the day he shows up and he's in plain clothes and you do it all and he just watches you. And one day I saw this process over and over and over with all the new recruits and I realized that's discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You know what our churches are? You know what our churches are? They're academies. That's it. All you do is come in here. Think about it. Some of you are taking notes, you know, at least the smart ones, you know, the people that, you know, were uh, D students, you know, they're just sitting there thinking they got it all in their head. They haven't figured it out yet, but a little, little hint. All right, so you guys are in academy right now. Dwayne and, and uh, Ben and uh, Christian and Kevin and all of us get up here, Jordan, and we get up here and we give you a lot of info and you take it down. But then you walk out and you get in your car and you have no clue where to begin. What the church needs more of today is field training officers. And that's got to be you. This is what I do. I go and find a cop or I find a firefighter and I say, can I show you how to apply what you learn in church out in your everyday work environment? That's what I do. It's an easy job. You know what my job really is? It's drinking a lot of coffee and hanging with dudes. Okay, best job ever. No paperwork involved. But that's what I do. I'm a field training officer. I just teach guys and some gals, how to live out their faith out there in the world. And we need more of them. That's disciple making. This is not ministry. It is for Dwayne and them. This is their ministry. You listening is just you preparing to go do your ministry. That's the role of the church and the people in the church. And we've lost sight of that. So here's your challenge. You're having a Super Bowl party. You're, most of you are going. I didn't get invited to one, so because I'm not cool, but whatever. But guess what? This is a perfect time when their team's losing and they're depressed to go, hey, you want to read the book of John with me? <laughs> right? I mean, if you're a San Francisco fan today, the book of John's going to console your heart. That's what we're about. The reality is you have opportunity to see God work. You either choose to do it or not. 
That's what this passage is about. When Ben talked about going two by two, you know what that means? Hey, get a partner. Let's go do this together. Hey, Steve, let's go make some disciples together. And we're going to get on the phone. You know what's interesting? My brothers and I and my dad, we get on the phone every week and we hold each other accountable. And I, it was weird when it was my brothers, like my dad, you know, my, you know, but they know me the most. They know me. And we're the ones, we encourage one another to go and make disciples. That's what we do. But there's some other interesting issues that are going on in the church. Here's another one, and this one came up. Actually, Tom and I were, we met for lunch today to go over or, uh, this week about ministry, and he actually said it a little different way, but it's the same message. But look at this. There's a lack of focus in the everyday Christian's life. There's a lack of focus in the everyday Christian's life. The reality is we got too much going on in our, in our world, okay? Too much. How many of you are successfully going to honor the Sabbath this weekend? Raise your hand. Okay. There you go. Barna survey says we're not obeying. You know, the problem is, the reason you're not is because every one of you, um, every one of you, I'm, and I want you to raise your hand if this is true. How many of you either have a mental or an actual paper-written task list of all the things you're going to do? Come on, raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. Come on. <laughs> every one of us, this is what we do in our life. We have a goal because the American dream, you got to pursue the American dream. So we get a goal in our life. And so we're like, okay, I got to go to college. I got to get a master's degree. I got to do this. I got to get this job. I got to do this. And we just get this mental task list, whether you, you actually look at it or not, but you actually do this. I think everybody does it. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't necessarily do that. But then something interesting happens. You go and you go and you like learn about Jesus. You're like, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. And here's what you do. The biggest mistake you've ever made in your life you have this long list and you just add Jesus to the list. Like, yeah, I'm going to put him right there. And I have enough time to make church on Sunday. Don't ask me to do something during the week, though. Okay? Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to whatever. I got Jesus on Sunday. We're good. When the reality is when you read the gospel, what he asks you to do is burn the old list and just have Jesus. I, I don't know if I'm convicting you. I'm not supposed to make you happy. I hope that you go to the Super Bowl party today so somber and depressed because you're wrestling with this. That is my hope for you. Aren't you glad they only bring me a couple times? That's why I told you I'm not the main pastor. This is what it is. Discipleship is give me your life. And we got to quit doing that. We've got to build margin. That's the word that we hear today, build margin. So when you look at this, this lack of focus, this uh, lack of margin, it becomes so fundamental that, you know, it can't be overlooked. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting. I travel a ton for my work because um, we have cities that we do ministry in. And when I first started traveling, I had, uh, when I would pack, I would literally have to check luggage. And here's, because here's what I would do. I'm like, oh, I'm going to wherever. Tampa, Florida is one of our cities. I'm going to Tampa, Florida. You know what? I need to go disciple guys, but I might have time to do a little bit of photography and then maybe do this and this. So I have to pack for every contingency. And, and then not only that, but I, I like to read books, but I way overthink how many books I can actually read. So I used to take like seven books with me on a four-day trip. That's how stupid I am. Okay. But that's how we do our lives. So you're all stupid like me. Anyway, so I pack a bag and I have it and I go. And you know what's happened over the years? I literally, my suitcase is that, I can go a suitcase that big for a week. I pack one book, I don't take any extra stuff with me. 
because I've got one focused thing I've got time to do. I have no margin for anything else on my trip. And that's how we need to live our lives. That's what we've got to do. But this isn't the only problem with discipleship. There's a couple of other things. Let, let me talk about one other major thing that's happened, and I believe this fundamentally. And that is there is a, a lack of understanding or a lack of the mind engaged in the church. All right? A lack of mind. So there's a lack of time. There's a lack of mind. And here's what I mean. The church over the years has conceded or given up or whatever the area of intellectual thought and reason and philosophy and theology and has taken on more felt need type approach. Um, that's why you saw an explosion of marriage ministries in the 70s and 80s. It was a felt need. A lot of marriages were falling apart. Um, you saw, uh, now you see a lot of justice missions and homeless missions and all kinds of things coming up addressing felt needs. Not to say they're not real, I'm just saying they're felt needs. But if you look at the Scripture, specifically in Acts, there was an overwhelming focus to stay on the main mission, and that was the making of disciples. In fact, when a felt need came up, you see this in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 6 and 7, you see a felt need come up. There was a fight between a group of, of women about food distribution, and the apostles said, hey, we can't be bothered with this. We've got to do the main mission, but they set up a little council to handle that. <clears throat> in the church, it's kind of like your deacon group. It's kind of like, get a few people to focus on that, but the main church, everybody needs to stay focused on the main mission. And one of the interesting things that's happened is we went to felt needs, all of a sudden the intellectual piece of the church went away. Even though, and I say this in, you know, studying philosophy and theology, and I teach that, even though we have a superior philosophical, theological worldview argument to the secular world, there is more evidence, way more evidence that God exists, that He's involved in our lives, that the gospel's true, than there is that there, that, that isn't the case. And we don't talk about it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, years ago, my wife and I felt called, uh, because a fr uh, friend of mine had come to Christ and I was discipling, we felt called to change churches, to go to a new church uh, so that they could, we could fellowship with them. And we tried a lot of churches in the area. And I picked this church, Eastridge, as my home church for two reasons. One is, when I came in, it's kind of dark like this. It's always been this way since I've been here. I liked that I could kind of hide in the back and no one could see me. It was comfortable. But number two, the reason I picked this church is because Dwayne at that time was starting an apologetic series, and I go, that's the type of preaching our church needs. Philosophy, apologetics, why do we believe that the Bible is true? Why is Jesus the Messiah? Why is God real? And the church has lost it. You want to know how I know that? Because we will sit there and entertain our kids in youth ministry day after day after day and not give them an intellectual argument. They'll go to college, and they just get devoured by their professors, and they walk out as atheists. And that is wrong because they're lying. The church has lost its mind. There's so many books uh, written on this, uh, but one of my favorites, everyone should read it. It's a quick read. It was written actually by, uh, by J.P. Moreland. It was published through Nat Press. I work for the Navigators. That's our publishing wing. And J.P. Moreland wrote about this heavily. And he says that when we detach the mind, the intellectual side, of that from the church and why people should believe and made it like faith is like this emotion, like, oh, I just want it to be true. And that, that is never the way it was meant to be. Yet that's what the church did. 
And so here's my encouragement as a disciple maker. Hey, look, if you want to go to the Super Bowl and just root for your team, that's fine, because you're just a little bit chicken to challenge someone with the gospel. That's fine. If you're a chicken, that's totally, I totally get it. So, but here's what you could do. Start picking up books and reading them. Read the scripture. Start letting it get to you, because we have superior arguments, and when you see them, it changed my life. In the early 90s, I started reading philosophy books. I'm like, oh my gosh, the idea of God existing makes, makes way more sense philosophically than the idea of God not existing. And it changed everything. It changed my prayer life. And I dove into the Scripture more than I've ever dove into the Scripture as I began to realize our faith is reasonable. We need a challenge. If you are a parent and your kids in junior high or high school, right now you have the opportunity to say, hey, let's go read a book together. Go get J.P. Moreland's book, uh, um, uh, Hold on, I'll think of the title in about an hour. Okay, so I just lost the title. It was in one of the slides we took out. Do you have it? There it is. J.P. Moreland, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Look at what he says. Let me just give you this. Uh, uh, do you have the whole slide? We took it out because in the last service I didn't get to it. Faith is now understood as a blind act of will, a decision to believe something that is either independent of reason or that is simply a choice to believe while ignoring the paltry lack of evidence for what is believed. Right? By contrast with this modern misunderstanding, biblical, biblically, faith is a power or a skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God, a trust in what we have reason to believe is true. What he's basically saying is, if you're here because you hope God exists, is different than you know God exists. Right? And here's fundamentally why this is true. Your behavior will always align with what you believe. Belief drives behavior every time. Belief drives behavior every time. If you don't have an active, crazy prayer life, I will challenge that you probably don't have one because you have no margin and you don't actually believe that God listens to prayer. Do you get it? Belief drives behavior. If you believe God really exists, is on the throne, is doing this thing, if the Messiah really resurrected from the dead, guarantee the Super Bowl party, you'd be like, let's do this. Do you get it? I hope so. Let me get the last two points here. There's a lack of obedience to the Scripture. A lack of obedience, and that's simple because we don't believe it, we don't obey it. Because once you begin to believe, I guarantee you. Here's the thing, and this is true in every part of your life. If you believe the cop has a radar gun down the street, do you usually obey the speed limit? Come on, raise your hand. Some of you are already drive, already drive like you aren't going anywhere, but anyway. <laughs> okay? Yeah. What you believe drives your behavior. If you believe there's an almighty, powerful God out there, you will observe the Sabbath. You will try to obey the Scripture. You will look at your own life. There's so many times where I'll do something, and I'm like, that's not in accordance with God's Scripture. And then the Holy Spirit invades, and I'm like, oh my gosh, oh Lord, I am so sorry. And I'm not repenting because I'm sorry. I'm repenting because I want to be close to God, and I believe He's there. I've seen Him do amazing things. So belief drives behavior. And one last part, and there's probably more reasons, but let me give you one last reason why discipleship doesn't happen, and that's this. There's a lack of of abiding prayer, a lack of abiding prayer. Now, there's two types of prayer in the world, okay? There's abiding prayer, and then there's like, help me now. This is how most of you pray. Something happens in your family, something happens with your kids, something happens, 
you call up the pastor for the first time who's never met you. That's no kidding. And you're like, oh my gosh, my son, da 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 da, my daughter, da 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 da, my husband, da 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 da, whatever it is. And then you go, and I've been praying. And the whole time I'm like, does the Lord know you? I'm not sure. Have you ever prayed before? And actually, a lot of people tell me this is the first time I've ever prayed. That's that type of prayer. God listens to those prayers, by the way. I'm not going to, we'll not talk about that too much, but there's like the whole, you know, like, oh my word, Lord prayer. Okay, that's there. Then there's abiding prayer. Here's what abiding prayer is. Abiding prayer is, I believe that God really exists and he listens to me. The evidence is overwhelming. So I want to be in communion with God. I want to hear him. Abiding prayer is a listening prayer. And I want to give him the prayers that he wants to hear. I want to be in conform with his will. That's abiding prayer. So how do you get abiding prayer? How do you get it? Let's just close with this thought. Abiding prayer, when you're listening to God, requires you to know God's voice. How do you know God's voice? How do you know it's not you saying, do this, 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 and this, and it's the Holy Spirit? How do you know that? Well, you know God's voice because you're in His Word, reading it in context all the way through, learning how He sounds, listening to His messages, obeying His words, and all of a sudden you begin to hear the voice of God. When the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I can clearly understand the Holy Spirit over my own thoughts and, and, and stuff because I'm in the Scripture. And more and more as I see God work and affirm it, I'm like, oh, yep, I'm doing what you want. I can hear you, Lord. I got it. I got it. There's times where I'm like, oh, Lord, I can't hear you because I'm off doing something stupid. But there's days where you're just like, oh, I got you, Lord. I got you. I will obey you. I'll go do it. That's abiding prayer. What if I told you there's a great apologist on the radio, great apologist philosopher. He proves the existence of God. He's spoken at Yale and Harvard and USC, all these great uh, liberal universities. And he's had packed out houses. Thousands and thousands of people come to hear him prove that God exists. Thousands of people have come to Christ in college campus ministry because of him. And I told you this, and then I told you, you can listen to him on the radio or a podcast. Here's how you'll know his voice. <clears throat> He's from India originally, so he has an Indian accent. We all know what that is. And he talks philosophy, and you'll hear him. So you go out, and you're, one day you're listening, and all of a sudden you hear a guy that sounds like from India, and he's doing this, and he's talking about college. Would you be reasonably assured that that's the same guy I was talking about? Probably. There's not a lot of Indians on the radio here in your car in Happy Valley. Just I, I mean, I haven't listened to the radio in a while, but I'm pretty sure there's not. How did you know that? Because I described it to you. That's what the Scripture does. It describes the voice of God. It describes the voice of God so you can have an abiding prayer. So all of these become this great block, roadblock for discipleship. And there's a couple things you can do. Understand your role. Make margin. Uh, you know, do, uh, get, into, get your prayer life going. Study. Get the mind engaged. There's so many things you can do right now that are not even that hard. It just requires you to read a book. I know for some of you that, that is, I mean, how many of you have been to a library in the last 10 years? No, I mean, I know. You don't even know where it is. It's right over here. We all know. I know. It won't hurt you. That's what we need. So right now, we're about to, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. I want to, I'm going to state this very clearly. I have no ulterior motive. I do not get paid by Eastridge. They don't, even, they don't pay me to speak here. They do support the navigators, but they do not pay me. Full disclosure. One of the ways as a church we are called to obey is by our giving and our offerings. And right now, you can spend time in prayer 
and ask the Holy Spirit, hey, Lord, do you want me to give right now to Eastridge? Eastridge is a, has a great vision ahead. They have some incredible ideas, and some of those ideas do require resources. They require you to be involved. They need your time and your treasure and your talents. They need it all. And so right now, as we begin this new season, I'm going to ask you to obey. And Dwayne didn't ask me to do this. Danae, none of the staff asked me to do this. I just decided I'm doing it. And I'm that guy. Ask for forgiveness. Right? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't care. And so my prayer today is that you will get a pr- abiding prayer obedience, and, but that you will start off by saying, God, today I'm, I'm going to start obeying you. And I'm going to start off by giving whatever I can. I'm just going to give a little bit. But I'm going to spend time today really thinking about how I can become your disciple. I might even go to the library and check out a book. Whatever it is, I want you right now to just consider what God is asking you to do. And if you've never done it before, I invite you to partake. And we're going to do that right now by the offering. And again, I don't get this money. This is, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm not saying if you put $30 in, God's going to bless you with a million. I don't, you know. Sometimes you put $30 in and he asks for your life. That's what I'm going to ask you to consider right now as we do the offering. I'm going to pray for the offering. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for your Super Bowl to be the most incredible Super Bowl ever because you got to see God at work. That's my prayer. Here we go. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for the people of Eastridge, for my family, my home church. Pray for all this, that you will use this body to make such an impact in this world because we were obeying you. We made margin and time for you. We gave of our offerings and our gifts as you called us to. I pray, Lord, you will use us in a mighty way where in 10 years we'll look back and go, holy smokes, that was awesome. And all God's people said, amen.